Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Itai Danovich, a professor and the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Danovich's clinical practice and research focuses on substance use disorders, as well as the integration of medical and mental health services. His studies are funded by the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Donovich is the author of over 80 articles and book chapters and co-editor of two books on substance use disorders. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and the past president of the California Society of Addiction Medicine. He serves as a governor-appointed state commissioner on the California Mental Health Services Commission. Dr. Donovich and I are going to talk about ADHD, addiction, the history of family therapy, and nature versus nurture. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Itai Donovich. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Like, we're going to dive right into it because you have so much experience um, around, obviously, addiction, um, but also just um, uh, psychiatry, behavioral medicine, like, you know, so much knowledge and so much wisdom. I have lots of questions. And um, I'd love to start out with my favorite question, which is, to you, what is ADHD? So uh, ADHD is essentially a constellation of symptoms. And it's defined as having at least six symptoms and one of several domains. One domain is inattention, things like getting distracted, being unfocused, making careless mistakes, disorganization. Another domain is hyperactivity or impulsivity. Hyperactivity is, you know, fidgeting and restlessness. Impulsivity is interrupting, having difficulty waiting, being sort of like generally excess, not even not being able to control to inhibit your impulses to do things. So for kids, traditionally ADHD is diagnosed in kids, um, six or more symptoms. Um, beginning typically before the age of 12 is uh, how the diagnosis is made, provided that there are those symptoms and really importantly that the symptoms interfere in academic, occupational or social function. Uh, in adults, it's, uh, it's five or more symptoms. And, uh, and similarly, there has to be an impact on function. But if you had to sort of uh, reduce it into a, a little box and say, here are, are what I think or what I know the main causes for ADHD, what would you say? Well, let me answer that question in two ways. First, let me answer it directly. Um, and, and then let me share just a problem, you know, with, with the answer. The direct answer to the cause is, is there's pretty good evidence that about two thirds, about 70% of the risk of ADHD is, um, is, is on account of genetics. So genes are neurobiology 
that are encoded by our genes has a huge impact contributing to the, the, the development of ADHD. And, um, and then another, another significant component has to do with the environment. Um, it's studies have suggested that there's, you know, about 22%. Uh, so about uh, of the, of the risk of, uh, ADHD has been attributed to specific genes. And then a significant part of that, part of that genetic risk, um, we don't know exactly what, what genes cause it. And they're probably gene environment, you know, interactions that, that contribute to that risk. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to ask about that too, the gene environment, right? The sort of the epigenetics talks about how we the environment has the power to kind of turn on or off a gene for you know, layman's terms, but um, what, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think that there's, there's no doubt that there's, that what leads to ADHD is, is something that is, you know, is, is both our underlying diathesis, our nature, and then also our nurture, like how we interact with the environment. And there have been specific studies that have demonstrated particular things in the environment that can affect ADHD, such as there was a study that subjected kids to voluntarily to different diets, you know, one set of diets, including um, artificial flavorings and colorants and whatnot, and another that was healthier. And, and the, there's good evidence that what we eat, the preservatives and what we eat, um, the processing of the things we eat can contribute to symptoms of ADHD. So it's, that's one example of environment interacting with some vulnerability that we have. Mm. But the, the other thing that I was going to say that's a problem with answering your question accurately is when we say what causes it, it suggests that we're sure what it is. And the diagnostic description that I gave you of ADHD, it's how we typically clinically diagnose ADHD. That's a very con, you know, reliable, consistent diagnosis, but it's not necessarily a valid diagnosis. So we, um, this is a little bit in the weeds, and I apologize for that, but no. it's important you know, to, what, to talking about why and, and how, is we separate what we call reliable diagnoses. That means five different psychiatrists or psychologists will make the same diagnosis from valid diagnosis. A valid diagnosis is we know what the disease is that underlies it. And with ADHD, we can reliably describe the symptoms. And that's important. They cause functional problems and we have interventions to help them. But we're still not exactly sure like what the underpinning of the, of the disease of ADHD is and whether it's one condition or multiple conditions. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to suggest that there may be several conditions that are packaged into this thing that we call and we describe as ADHD. And, um, and so that relates to your question of, well, what causes it? Well, I think it's a great answer because I think I personally value experts answering. It's not even that it's honest. I know you're being honest here, but uh, well, truthfully saying, you know, we, the, the community uh, is a little bit in the weeds still. We're trying to figure it out, right? Just like scientists are still trying to figure out what is the universe and God and like, we don't have the answers, right? We have suggestions, but, and that brings up a point is that what you mentioned is interesting because, you know, when, when I hear people say, oh, well, 
what's the cause? And they go, well, it's, it's a brain, it's a neurological disorder. And so it parents, what parents hear is there's a thing in my child's brain that's, or something's broken there, like a biological marker. But what I've heard and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was, uh, uh, listening to a talk on the, the, the sort of lead experts on the DSM when it first started, I think Robert Spitzer was the first guy who was sort of the main task force lead and, he was being interviewed and he said there are no for most of the psychological disorders in the dsm there are not really biological markers and so we had to vote we had to create symptoms and then vote on it to make it a disorder and this is not a conspiracy this is just i'm assuming this is kind of how it still works in in an area like that or or what do you um see happening in in the psychiatry psychology when a symptom gets uh, defined or when a disorder gets created how is that yeah, you know yeah well first um i had the the fortune of training with bob spitzer um okay. and he oversaw the third edition of the dsm and the dsm is now in its fifth edition but the third edition was a huge um phase shift and then I think it was 1980s, but it was it uh, it was when the DSM shifted from just a collection of different diagnostic descriptions to what it is now, which is a much more highly reliable um, uh, document with with definitions where the symptoms were defined in ways that, according to statistical you know properties. Um, you had a high likelihood of arriving at the same diagnosis, especially if you had different raters. But it wasn't necessarily valid diseases, and I think that that's something that that um, that Bob Spitzer was clear about from the outset, and that those of us that use the DSM have to recognize constantly. So it helped. It helped because we need to be able to communicate about conditions. If I'm, if you, you know, reach out to me to ask me about, um, you know. Uh, uh, about a, a clinical question uh, about somebody that has ADHD, and then I want to confer with a colleague about it. We all know what we're talking about because we have the same, like, working operational idea about it. But if we want to study the neurobiologic basis, sometimes we have to leave that definition behind to think, well, what are the different parts of the brain that are involved, and are there commonalities or distinctions? Are there subtypes that can help us? Um, uh, that, that can help help us have a more coherent idea of what's going on. The the problem with having a um, you know a label that includes a lot of variants is that then when you look at what the common themes are, you can't identify commonalities because you have all these variants. It's like if you have a basket of different fruits and you ask, well, what do they have in common? It's it's really hard because they're all different. Whereas if they're all the same fruit, you know you can comment on those on commonalities and talk about the genes that contribute to those fruits. Uh, that's great. And thanks for laying it out that way. Um, which again, I find it a very sobering, uh, honest answer to what's really going on, right? Where we're as science should be or medicine, it's like we're in the process of figuring out and, and learning and improving, right? Versus the results are in, sorry, guys, that's it. But I often uh, uh, interact with or encounter experts who are like, oh, no, 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 the results are in. This is what ADHD is. This is the cause. And that's it. Don't question it. Right. And it's just to me, it's like a dead end street and we can't go anywhere from there. And parents are like, 
okay, well, then I guess I just got to reach for the medication. So my child performs at school and I can stay at my job. I don't know if to go to the principal's office all the time. Everyone wins, right? And I feel like, and we'll get into that in a little bit, that that I, it's really refreshing to hear you um, to really lay it out the way it's, it is currently. And so that leads me to my next question. Uh, when we're talking about genetics, right? You mentioned uh, nature versus nurture. Uh, often I, when I hear that, what parents hear is like, there's nothing you can do because it's in your, it runs in your family, right? And what I found out myself is that it's, more like you're predisposed, but not necessarily predetermined. What do you say to those two uh, terms? Well, I think that's right. You know, like any once you raise kids, right, you see this, which is like they, you know, they, they come into this world with some endowment, right? And then they get shaped by the world. And we all know this from our own experience, looking at who we are and, and how we are the way that we are, which is that, you know, there's significant parts of ourselves that 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 you know that we've inherited you know and in, in various shapes and and sizes and forms and things that we like or don't like about ourselves that we see in in our families and then there's all the ways that we're shaped by the environment that's around us um so i think with respect to adhd it's it's particularly important because one of the things to know about adhd is that people that have adhd differ from those that don't have adhd by degree rather than by kind. In other words, ADHD is is you know is is on a spectrum, and it reflects a predisposition, but the, a predisposition that many of us share. And so it's a little bit different than like, do you have an infection or not? You know, plus or minus, or yeah. do you have a certain brain disorder or not? We have these cognitive functions that you know that can be adaptive or maladaptive that exists on a spectrum and then we've defined that this this, this disorder based on whether a, a, a constellation of somebody's like cognitive repertoire causes problems in their ability to do well in school or to do well at work or to do well socially yeah. and and so that creates all sorts of problems so on the one hand there's definitely validity to the fact that there's problems there. And we never, we don't want to minimize or undermine the validity of that diagnosis. I think that's what causes some people to say, no, you know, forget all of the noise. There absolutely is a signal here. It's a real diagnosis. And on the other hand, um, it's what causes people to call into question the diagnosis and, you know, and, and then all the interventions that are associated with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. There are a series of like, contradictory or or I should say controversial issues with ADHD. It's both way overdiagnosed and it's underdiagnosed, you know, at the same time. And so you you get problems on 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 both sides of the coin with respect to ADHD. Yeah. And there's this saying that always for me it rubs me the wrong way when somebody says like, oh, I finally got diagnosed. Now I know what's wrong with me. And while I understand what they're saying, this idea of what's wrong with me tells me again, there's a, there's even a, already a stigma that, that who you are and how you are at this moment in life is wrong. There's something wrong and you need to correct it versus, oh, right now I'm having trouble with these type of behaviors or this type of distraction or whatever, but I'm working on it. Right. So, so true. I mean, I wish you, I hear that a lot, especially, you know, as, 
um, as my friends are, you know, watching their uh, children get diagnosed with ADHD and recognizing symptoms in, them, in themselves and saying exactly what you just described. <laughs> oh, this is what's wrong with me. And what I try to convey to them, what I hope people would do, it's, I think it's important that people recognize the commonalities there, but is to bring the same compassion that you would bring to your kid to yourself of like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, this explains a thing or two. This is what I've been dealing with. This is what I was compensating for. Like, wow, I managed to achieve all these things in my life despite having a lot of difficulty with these domains, as opposed to um, what you suggested, which is the, the kind of pathologizing that we can do by labeling ourselves. Yeah, and that's come up recently. Uh, I forgot who I was listening to. They were talking about uh, that it's actually a stigma to um, label someone with ADHD. We think it's a stigma to say, oh, you don't have ADHD or, or you're just lazy and all that. And which I agree, those are, that's a whole nother discussion. Those are stigmas too. But it's almost like stigmatizing to tell someone, oh, you have a brain disorder. You know, it's like, wow. What, what does that do to a human being, right? Imagine being six years old, uh, you, you have doctors walk around you and look at you all worried and they're talking about the brain and the parents are worried and it's like, oh, I guess I'm something wrong with me, right? So that's, that's my biggest concern with labels. Yes, we need them as a shorthand, right? Medical, psychiatric or psychological shorthand. I totally get that. But I wonder if there would be a way to separate those two right is is how behind the scenes the experts talk and then how we talk about it in the public sphere but i think that we're it's too late i think we've passed the point of no return you know the adhd labels out of the bag yeah yeah i mean i think that conversations like this embracing some of the complexity it, it are is probably some of the way through that is is you know helping people have a functional understanding of, about this stuff as opposed to a kind of dichotomous it's good or it's bad, you know, it's right or it's wrong yeah. type of perspective. We do need a label because the labels help us get resources and services. And, you know, the, in, our, in our current highly structured school system, one of the big interventions for kids that do have ADHD is giving them more time um, because they have difficulty managing time. And so the label triggers the processes that enable those exceptions, right, which is the upside. The downside is, uh, you know, we certainly don't want any person and, or any child to think of themselves as defined by any label, whatever that is. Um, and it's, it's like you, you know, insinuated before. I mean, we have this constellation of characteristics that are who we are, and some of them, you know, give us advantages and some of them are challenges, but it so much has to do with how we wield them and how we learn to um, carve a path for ourselves with this endowment that you know we've been born with and and shaped by yeah it, it's amazing to me you know if for example if we're just going to look at this idea that um the symptoms we call them symptoms again i think that's the expert shorthand but really aren't we talking about observed behavior right and if we're observing a behavior then wouldn't it beg the question, well, what is causing a child to behave that way? If it's not a, say, a tumor in the brain or something like a biological thing that's wrong, and if we say it's genetic, okay, but where are the parents coming from, their grandparents? Like, what's the lineage of stress, trauma, um, abuse, substance, all that stuff, right? The hand-me-down stuff, as I call it. Then 
how come we're not spending more time? Well, maybe we are, you tell me, but I feel like we're spending more time sort of just labeling it and locking it away versus, well, what could cause the behavior and how can the behavior be modified? And perhaps we can use that as a transition to go a little bit into behavioral uh, therapy and family therapy, which I'd love to get into a little bit of the history of what happened to family therapy. But what do you think uh, uh, we could do better in that area in, in looking for how to modify the behavior versus just labeling and medicating? Um, well, it, uh, it, it, it's such a great point. Um, it's, it's, you know, I guess I used the term functional before, because even when we're dealing with something that's a challenge, it's, we can enhance or, or do the opposite in terms of function based on how we manage other things in our lives. I'll give you one example that I'm sure any of your listeners can relate to is sleep. I, you know, I don't know about you, but if you, you know, when I don't sleep well, I can't focus. I can't pay attention. Uh, my ability to concentrate, you know, is through the window and, uh, and, and managing sleep. In, incidentally, that's one of the um, behavioral strategies to helping people with ADHD. But it can certainly, if a, if a person is chronically underslept, um, that will contribute to challenges focusing, challenges maintaining impulse control. And there are a lot of things like that in our life that can ultimately lead us to a, you know, if, a, if the problem for somebody is difficulty sleeping, or if it's stress at home, or if it's a diet that's super high and, you know, simple sugars and, and, and caffeine, and that is overstimulating somebody that's causing a problem, well, then we don't want to place a diagnosis, give a treatment, and kind of miss the root cause um, on the one hand. On the other hand, if they have the diagnosis, they've done everything they could that's within their ability to um, manage their, their function and enhance their well-being and their struggling, we want to make sure that they have the, the, all the advantages of interventions that have been well-established, including medications that might be appropriate. Yeah, and this brings me to my favorite subject, which is really the the crux or the the where what's the saying? I can think of it in, in German, right? I was born in Switzerland. I speak German, but there's a thing where you uh, uh, divide the the wheat from the what is it? The wheat from the chaff. I think that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so that point, right? I wanted to make, which is uh, looking into the family life. Uh, as a whole, right? Looking at the behavior of the parents as well, right? Because if we're going to say it's genetic, then, well, then we better look at the parents, uh, especially how are they uh, sleeping? How is their coping with stress? What are they, how's the relationship in the house? How's the parenting, all that stuff. And we've talked about this before. Um, this idea of family therapy seems to have kind of faded into the background and it's become just child therapy. Like, the child's the problem. So let's, let's isolate the child and let's, let's work on the child. But can you maybe just give us a brief history of where uh, family therapy was compared to today, where it is today? Well, um, uh, so family has family therapy has a long history in psychiatry. And, um, and back in the era of, of psychoanalytically oriented psychodynamic psychotherapy in psychiatry, right? That's a big mouthful, but that was basically the phase of psychiatry that, that was derived from Freud that believed that the, 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 the way to help people with mental health problems was to interpret 
the underlying cause of the problem. And the notion that that you know that Freud theorized was that most mental health problems were the result of unresolved conflict. And if you could help somebody to identify the conflict and bring it to consciousness, and he had all these strategies for bringing it to consciousness, like interpreting dreams and free associations, that you could liberate that, that person from the anxiety and distress caused by the conflict. So th there was a whole body of psychiatry that originated in an effort to try to help people develop insights around these conflicts. And then other forms of therapies developed over time as well, ultimately cognitive therapies and behavioral therapies. So within that, there was both individual therapy and family-oriented therapies, and there are also lots of disciplines of family-oriented therapies. But in the 60s and 70s, that was a major um, mode of intervention to help um, uh, people and families that were having stress, bringing them into the, a room together, together with a therapist and helping them to identify dynamics um, and helping them to develop insight around dynamics and, and, and learn other repertoires of interacting with each other adaptively. Um, in, in addition to that, there were also group therapies which sought to do the same thing. For a variety of reasons, um, over time, and certainly over the last couple of decades, the availability of family therapy and, and group therapy diminished substantially. Some of them had to do with the way mental health care is financed, and others of them had to do with the fact that family therapy was really good for some things, but it wasn't good for other things. And, you know, like it, the field was susceptible to the adage that, you know, to the kid with a hammer, the whole, whole world's a nail. So family therapy was used for everything, including conditions that it wasn't ideal for. And um, now that being said, there's a lot of value to it. And um, when an individual has a is lives within a family and they're they are experiencing problems, there's often interventions that are needed in, at the level of that individual, but then often support that's needed for the family as a whole. ADHD is a really good example of that, particularly ADHD as kids, because it can be, you know, wonderful and really hard to raise a kid who is, uh, uh, you know, unfocused, who is, uh, who, who is restless, who is impulsive, who has a, you know, who has boundless curiosity and appetite for doing many different things and constant energy and just is going, going, going. Um, it's really difficult. And, and for a parent to figure out on their own, without the benefit of education and knowledge and things that have worked for others, how to manage that is really difficult. Some parents certainly do, but there's really good evidence that giving parents skills and tools and frameworks and guidance for how to manage the, the more challenging behaviors of ADHD can, can help them support their kids. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that because of all the factors that you mentioned that really, or you would even suggest that we could still benefit from family therapy around ADHD today, if we could figure out a way to, because of the insurance companies and all that, or is, is that boat just, is that ship gone? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I actually don't know because I, in my, in my own, my own specialty, as you mentioned at the intro is, is addiction. And I focus more on adults. Um, so in terms of what insurance is covering, and I'm not sure, uh, I do know that there's very good evidence that 
um, that parent training is and parent training, coaching and family therapy, because they're all different things, but the, each of those are helpful. And um, with 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 middle to older kids, kids that are that are older than six, six to 18, actually what's recommended by all the standard care guidelines as first line treatment for ADHD is medications. And we can talk about that. I know you expressed some concerns about that, but that is what the evidence suggests is most effective. However, there's also really strong evidence that therapy boosts the effect of medications, that it is helpful. And there's really strong evidence that that parental intervention, parental support, particularly at the time kids are younger, is very, very helpful in, in um, you know, altering the course of the condition. Yeah. A couple of things to unpack there. Yeah, I, I, I see that. Now, in terms of well, one thing I've come across often is, is this uh, lashback or feedback that parents have because they feel like they're being shamed, right? It's like, well, you, the whole family should come in because, you know, the parents have a have have something to do with this and then and then we get into this like well you know it's my kids ADHD what are you saying well you know uh, hand me down parenting skills and transgenerational trauma blah 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 and people just stop and go this has nothing to do with me like I don't have ADHD so it's my child right and I just find it very unfortunate that we we as parents are not willing to dig a little deeper and be like hey maybe there's something I'm not seeing maybe there's a blind spot here right and so it's a little hard. That's another factor why a lot of families are like, we're good. We got we got the, the diagnosis. We got the medication. But about the medication, it's interesting you said it's the most effective, right? And I guess we'd have to look at that, like effective in what, short term? Like, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, adult life, long term. How many, uh, you know, cases do we have as evidence to say uh, these kids didn't get medicated and you know 30 years later they're actually doing fine right versus i feel we kind of lose people after five years you know mm -hmm. studies it's like they can do two three five years and then it's like yeah we don't really know and there was a study by um nadine um lambert at berkeley who followed uh, i think 500 kids for 30 years and she, and it was on ritalin and it was medicated kids unmedicated and obviously the placebo or the other, right, that you need for a study. Um, and she actually found the opposite. She found that over in the long term, the kids that were medicated with Ritalin for ADHD were more likely to uh, self-medicate, like smoke, drink, get into drugs, some went to jail, and, you know, there's a whole statistic. She never got to publish it. She had an accident and passed away, but the, the results are on the internet, if you will. And it just brings up the question, like, if it's effective in the short term, right? Like that's kind of our society. It's like, I need something now. Like we can't function as a family, you know, could it be that that has a lot to do with when we say it's the most effective, right? For right now to get through college for your child, but then we don't really, we don't look any further. Or what do you say to that kind of short term, short, short yeah, sighted I think thinking? That, well, I think the concerns that you raise are really um, important concerns. And um, I think that while people have a lot of different ideas and attitudes towards this stuff, it's really common for um, parents to be um, really worried about the recommendation that their young kid is being offered medications to deal with the problem. Um, I think that um, there, is, there is a lot of noise in the literature. Um, 
there, there are not enough long-term studies. The, among the studies that exist, there's very strong evidence that, um, that stimulant medications can help the course of ADHD for kids around a wide range of measures. And, and that's why the kind of best practice evidence guidelines that have been endorsed by the psychiatric associations, but also the pediatric associations and psychology all have come around to supporting that on the one hand. On the other hand, as we talked about before, ADHD is a heterogeneous condition, meaning there's lots of subtypes within ADHD. There's lots of things that can contribute to it. Studies tend to you know, mean on average that people that were in the study, that were in the intervention arm, responded over the course of the study or the length of time that they were evaluated on those measures. And it doesn't invalidate the, the, the reality that there's other things that can help as well. And so the decision to start a medication on a kid is a value-based decision that a family needs to make with full information and having tried other things, there are some families that are gonna appropriately wanna do everything they can to manage behaviors and do therapy and alter nutrition and alter behaviors and sleep before they consider medications. And there are some families that may have more limited ability to make some of those changes. Um, you know, if you're a single parent in a setting or situation where, uh, you know, you're working, you, you can't put the type of food on the table that you want for your kid, you can't regulate their sleep as much, and they're having trouble in school, um, you may prefer to have a kind of a, a full bore behavioral strategy and family therapy and all that, but you may be constrained and, um, right. So I, I think that there's just a lot of variance within that yeah. and, uh, and a lot of truth, you know, for people. Yeah. And I think then we're brushing up against, I don't want to say the system, but the kind of world we've created, right? We've created a world where um, almost like the grind, right? Stress is encouraged and like go out and get it and work hard and work 20 hours because the next guy's going to work 21 hours and get a degree and move up the ladder. And I feel like there's a system that then uh, the kind of parents that you mentioned that maybe they're just brushing up against that they just cannot, uh, engage in a healthier lifestyle because of low income or where they live, or, you know, uh, it's almost like an, in, a system that's out of balance. And I know I'm talking about sort of a more ethereal, like, Hey, what if we could change the world? We could change education. We could make everything less stressful and more, you know, go back to being grounded and all that stuff, which, we can talk about in the end, but I just feel like, yeah, I mean, I, I had to agree with you that, that for some parents out there, um, you know, going to medication and, and, and doing that because they just need to be able to go to work and not be in a principal's office every day, uh, cause they're going to lose their job, right. To put food on the table, that might be the case. Right. But I agree as long as they're informed, they know what it, what it is, what it does, um, perhaps in parallel, they're exploring other things through uh, co-ops co or, you know, getting shared babysitting, uh, trying to get healthier food somehow through a program. There's many ways to do it, right? But but I would agree. Um, it does take a lot. I mean, I have to say with our son for seven years, it almost became a, a part-time job. I was going to say full-time, but that's not true. We still work. But, you know, versus us getting even busier and and 
medicating, we decided to do the opposite and get less busy and use our resources to kind of make it a part-time job to really calm the nervous system, better nutrition, more nature, different school, right? Um, and is now uh, pretty much, we dissolved, uh, I would say 90% of his symptoms. Um, he still uh, struggles sometimes with attention, but it's when, like you said, when he didn't sleep enough or he's not really interested in this test. He didn't prepare as well for the this test than he did for the other one that he really liked the subject of. So, you know, but I, I just call it more like he's still getting to know what what he loves and hates and where he brushes up against the box. And and it's fine. He's developing. He's almost a, pretty much an A, uh, straight A student um, with no IEP, no medication. And, and that's our case, right? There's no one size. That's such all. a wonderful example, you know, of of doing, you know, our, our kids can, and one of the way we, as we parent our kids, you know, we, we try to recognize what challenges they're facing and then help to shape the world around them to support them because they have agency, but they have limited agency um, in, in, in doing that. And I think that, you know, when we have a young infant baby, they cry, we have to recognize, are they cold? Are they hungry? And we adapt the world to meet their needs. As the kids get older, it gets more complicated and challenging. But I think what you just described, you know, giving your kid greater access to the outdoors, you know, um, changing schools, leaning in, sensing what is the environment, what is the interaction between your kids' needs and the environment, and how can you help to add support and enrichment that they respond to is is such a wonderful way to facilitate that that growth. I do think, as as you kind of had said in your in your question that the system is a major problem. And we know that, you know, most of us have, are in, you know, when our kids are school age, are, you know, are in super structured schools um, where some kids are able to thrive and a lot of kids struggle. And the schools, you know, often don't have the ability or the resources or class size to even allow teachers to be able to tailor, you know, curriculums to the needs of students. And it's, 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 it's so, unfortunate because a lot of kids coming through those systems think that they're the problem where they're not. They may have different styles of learning and different trajectories of learning and uh, and their life will have to involve figuring out how to, um, you know, how to play to their strengths. Um, but we can't, unfortunately, always rely on schools to do that because a lot of times they inadvertently do the opposite. And lastly, as, as particularly has been described with in, for kids, there's these gender disparities where, you know, girls with ADHD tend to not be noticed at all and boys with ADHD. Um, and so they don't get services or care for that reason. And then boys tend to have behavioral enactments that get them in trouble and they get punished or labeled as being, you know, quote unquote bad. So there's, you know, that creates a lot of system person interactions that then have to be unpacked or dealt with. Yeah. And certainly we need systems in this world, right? So it's not like get rid of the system, but like it brings me up to uh, have an interesting uh, thought. What do you think it would take? Because I'm a big believer that it's time to change the name away from a disorder. And that's my belief, right? But what could it be named? And what do you think that the American Psychiatric Association would ever go for, or the DSM for renaming? I mean, they have renamed it before, but it's always pushed further into the disorder, right? Versus renaming it to be more um, 
accommodating, uh, a bit more humanizing, not focusing on what's wrong. Do you think we could ever do that and give it a, a better name, not a more, even more clinical name, but something that is not about a disorder and there's something wrong with you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think that, um, that, you know, I'm also somebody who is skeptical of labels. And, um, and so I'm going to speak to the perspective of organized psychiatry um, while also recognizing the concern you have that labels are pathologizing and stigmatizing. The, the concern is that we have this whole world of that where services are paid for based on labels and services are made available based on labels and schools know to make accommodations based on labels and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's part of why there's been a move to demarcate and define labels. Um, now, it requires using those labels correctly. And as I mentioned before, there are problems with overdiagnosis and inappropriate diagnosis of ADHD. So we do need to you know, draw a line in the sand in terms of when we define something as being a problem that is beyond the scope of what's normal, where it needs additional services and accommodations. And that's where we define this term disorder. The problem is, as we said before, that line is a little bit arbitrary. And, you know, on the margins, it's going to create problems and confusion. However, um, there are people that are clearly on one side of it or the other. So I, I see both things. I see the need for diagnostic language. And by the way, all of medicine is moving that way. You go to your doctor with a series of complaints, you're, you're gonna have a problem list where everything is defined as a disorder or condition that then can be billed for and that drives that whole machinery and system. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, we need to step back and, uh, and think about these things functionally, um, realize that who we are is not defined by any of these things, whether they are on the spectrum or that they are um, really distinct maladies. Um, if you have, I mean, there's lots of examples of people that have physical impediments that have figured out how to transcend them and, and be incredible athletes or perform despite the, the, the um, challenges that they were you know, endowed with. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we have to do both. We need to live in a world you know, with systems and labels and then we also have to not be defined by them and not let them narrow our field of view so that we, um, uh, you know, so that we don't, we don't think as broadly and adaptively as we can. Yeah. I think there's a, the third element, which is kind of there already, but it's this idea that, uh, labels are okay. They're needed to write as a shorthand and to prescribe and do all these things in the system. But also, could the label be more empowering than disempowering, mm. right? And then yeah. also, as a societal point of view, like let's not be defined by a label, but let's use it as a temporary challenge or struggle that we're working on and we're supporting you and you'll be fine and you'll grow out of it. Unless there's really enough evidence to say, you'll, sorry, you won't grow out of this one, which I just don't think there is enough evidence around ADHD that it's for life. I mean, they, they keep throwing it out there like, oh, you're stuck with it and it's, you have it. Once you have it, you have it. It's just not true. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think actually there are the stats on that suggest that about only about 15% of ADHD that's diagnosed in childhood persists into adulthood in, in its full form. Right. About 
you know, about 50%, 40 to 60%, depending on the studies that you look at, there are symptoms that, that persist in partial form. But uh, for sure, there's an onset during, you know, typically early childhood, and there's offset for a lot of kids during adolescence. It doesn't always persist. And, um, and there's no shortage of people that had, that is, particularly those adults whose kids get diagnosed, who recognize in retrospect that they probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD, and yet they managed to <laughs> raise their hand, That's me. Uh, be functional yeah. and, and achieve well-being and, you know, balance in life, um, notwithstanding that. Yeah. Well, I want to switch uh, topics because you're uh, an expert around in addiction. And I had this uh, thought, and I shared this with you before, based on uh, one of my favorite thinkers, Gabor Mate, who's also an MD, uh, said that he believes ADHD is a coping mechanism. And when I heard that, I let it sink in and I was like, okay, that's kind of, that resonates with my thinking around ADHD, right? For seven years, I've been researching and listening and hearing and kind of trying to have it make sense. And then I thought, well, but wait, aren't addictions also coping mechanisms, right? And then I thought, well, could it be that ADHD is actually more like, I'm not saying it is a addiction, but like an addiction, the way it functions where you, you're uncomfortable with the present moment and you are getting uh, addicted to a distraction to the next moment or the shiny thing or over there, not here, safe or fun over there, not boring, unsafe here, right? So I just wanted to throw that out there as a point of discussion. What comes up when you hear that, that silly question, could it be that ADHD is more like an addiction than just a deficit of attention type of disorder? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, great. Yeah. Gabor Mate is, is, is terrific. And he's terrific at putting these labels and terms in language that anybody can relate to. And particularly when he talks about addiction, he talks about his own um, compulsive behaviors and the things that he gets into um, that, uh, that, that have parallels to addiction. Um, I think that addiction is also a complex concept because there are elements of addiction that seem like that, that um, there are sort of final common pathways with addiction. One is um, compulsively doing things. And there's many reasons to compulsively doing things. You know, addiction is one of them. ADHD may be another reason that somebody is, you know, um, compulsive about something. Um, but I view them still as, as separate disorders because I think that that, that, dimension of addiction is just one of the dimension of it. It's neither necessary nor sufficient to have a full diagnosis of addiction. And addiction also, like ADHD, is a diagnosis that, or is a condition that has a spectrum. We can all relate to parts of addiction, but then at some point for some people, things move past a threshold of normal compulsivity or you know, normal reinforcement um, or normal self-medication or self-management with the things around us into a pattern of a, a real maladaptive pattern of compulsivity, compulsion, inability to alter the behavior despite negative consequences, cravings, and then everything else that we associate with the, the condition of addiction. So in the mild, you know, on the margins, 
there's a lot of characteristics of addiction that are common to other things. Um, but I think as you move into full-fledged addiction, it, it starts to become something that is, is, I think, distinct, and I would delineate separately from ADHD, or other things that it's sometimes compared to, like OCD um, and whatnot. Right. Yeah, I think definitely it's not the same. I was just wondering, because when we talk about, somebody asked me, what's addiction to you? And I certainly as a layman have always said, it's a distraction that I can no longer control. So it was fun for a while and it was like kind of risky and maybe I shouldn't, but I did it anyway. And one, one too many times. And then it was like, Oh, now I just, I can't stop. Right. And then I would call it an addictive behavior. And I feel like with ADHD, where you have the child sitting in the classroom and is dis distracted by the squirrel, or the shiny object. Right. And suddenly the more, distractions you're exposed to um, involuntary, right? You're at school or you're at home and there's all these, our world is so distracting right now with all these noises and video games and billboards and shiny things and award shows. And it's just, everything is like, you know, social media is, is I think the biggest one. And at some point we can't control it anymore. And we're just constantly, like I see it with my son still, I mean, he's way better but he can get sucked into like many adults can right into the, the scrolling on TikTok or uh, uh, Instagram. And I see it as a, at some point you just can't control it anymore and you spend four hours on it. Right. To me, that's an addiction, uh, but it's also a distraction. But then we go back to like, what are, what are we distracting from? Like, what are we trying to check out from or right cope? What are we trying to cope from or cope with? Um, yeah, so that, that's what I meant. It's a similar kind of, uh, we have to go back to the cause. We can't just label it, you know, and say, that's it. That's what it is. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I would agree. I think it's, it's one element of addiction and then you need these other elements to you to get the formal diagnosis. And, you know, we often use this terminology, you know, uh, uh different clinically than how we use it in our, in our kind of lay world. And so I, I think a lot of people use the term addiction to describe what you just mentioned, even though as a, you know, addiction psychiatrist, I might use it differently when I'm actually making a diagnosis. But the, the other thing that, I, that, that your question makes me think about is just, you know, both addiction and ADHD also impact our executive function, you know, our ability to govern decisions. Um, and both of them also impact our uh, ability to manage attention. So in ADHD, we have difficulty focusing attention, even though paradoxically you can have hyper-focus, you often have this distractibility. And in addiction, you have this craving, which keeps on pulling attention, you know, to something that's going to alter your state of being. It speaks to the fact that we have these like different brain parts of our brain, the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex so that controls executive function. We have the part of our brain, the limbic system that controls some basic emotions. We have the parts of our brain that controls um, uh, uh, motivated behavior and whatnot. And whatever condition we're dealing with manifests through, through these different functional regions of the brain. And um, it's one of the reasons that it can be difficult to move between our labels and then our theories about what's going on because we have to translate them through which part of the brain is impacted 
And, and there's a lot of overlap in these areas of the brain. Would you say, though, that stress and trauma or trauma is essentially uh, unhealed stress or an unhealed wound, right? Say childhood wound, that those two pretty much are for the most part responsible for our nervous system to be in, in flight or fight mode and therefore we're uncomfortable and, and we, we want to distract or we want to be out uh, doing something else that feels good, right? We're not, we're not really equipped to be with or handle um, the discomfort of, a, say, a responsibility or a stress that's coming at us. So we numb out, right? It, they're kind of similar in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a certain amount of stress can be good. Um, we have to be able to learn to adapt to stress. And stress that is unmanageable or that we don't have control over starts to chip away at us and causes all sorts of harms. So I agree 100% learning how to manage stress. Since we can't make stress go away, and many of us seek stress, we seek to stress our bodies or our minds in different ways. It, you know, I think part of the reason people do that is to learn ways to adapt to stress. Um, and one of the strategies actually that is effective, one of the behavioral strategies for ADHD is, is mindfulness meditation. Um, it's one of the metacognitive skills that people can learn to help them manage the wandering mind and the, the distractibility and the what can be challenging, challenges focusing. And people can absolutely cultivate skills and brain abilities to um, not just overcome, but to transcend some of these challenges. And, um, and I think there's a reason that some of these traits kind of stay in the population. They're, they really aren't necessarily pathologies. They're double-edged swords that can cause us challenges in some areas and then can also confer advantages in others, particularly if we learn how to lean into them and how to wield and manage them. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'd like to just uh, perhaps um, end with a, a question uh, to you for our listeners, for parents with children with ADHD, even for adults. But And you mentioned uh, one now that's really powerful, which is meditation. But what are your suggestions to parents, perhaps, if they just had a diagnosis or they're about to get a diagnosis uh, for their child, um, things that they can start thinking uh, about moving forward, suggestions to uh, uh, deal with a, a diagnosis like that? Well, I think anytime you get any significant medical diagnosis and certainly any mental health diagnosis, I think it's really important to find clinicians that you trust and have confidence in, that have the expertise to guide you and that you feel understand your values and your concerns and um, and can be responsive to you. Um, it, it can be difficult to do that anywhere in healthcare, um, but it's it's even more difficult in mental health care. And uh, but but all the more important because there's a lot that's in the subjective realm. So ADHD is particularly challenging and and um, because it can be diagnosed in so many different ways and that's confusing to parents. A pediatrician can diagnose and treat it. A psychologist can. A psychiatrist can. A neurologist can. Some schools have assessments, you know, for it. Other times, schools recommend that you get your own private assessment. It is very confusing. And so I think it's important for um, parents to understand the lay of the land a little bit about it, 
Um, I think that there's a lot of good resources online and becoming informed uh, about you know, what the condition is and what some of the treatments are and what the good questions are to ask is really, really valuable. Um, because the first step is advocating to have adequate assessments, appropriate assessments, and ensuring that you're confident in the assessments, that they match up with, with what you think is going on. And if they don't, that you can ask questions about them. Um, and that ultimately that you're offered the various um, uh, services, interventions, treatments that can be helpful, whether they're psychosocial, integrative, environmental, or biomedical. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And I just want to thank you for, for your time. I know you're a busy man and I'm really excited to get this out into the world, this episode. And, and it's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on and, and talking to you. Thank you, Rome. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, appreciate your interest in this subject and all your efforts trying to get the word out and, and get people informed. So anytime. Thank you.